Well, good morning. The last sermon of 2023. I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, we began this year with the Lord's Day, and we end this year with the Lord's Day. That gave us 53 Lord's Day. What a wonderful and marvelous thing the Lord gave us for this year. And I know that He has many wonderful things for us as we live in a fallen and broken world, as we as the church live in exile. So, Jeremiah 29. What a marvelous and weighty chapter before us this morning. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Gracious and heavenly Father, we, we thank You that we, as Your church, can sit under the means of grace this last day of the year. And we would ask that once again that You would attend to Your Word, that You would instruct us, that You would encourage us in the faith, that we would come to have a better understanding of what it means to live in exile as we anticipate the coming of Christ to come and, and get us and to, for us to be joined with you in heaven. Bless our time this morning. Encourage us in the faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Real quick, look down at verse 11 of 29. In fact, I imagine many of you have this verse memorized. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What an incredible verse for your life. It's not hard to memorize. It's not too difficult to understand. It has such a powerful message. What a great promise. I mean, what's not to like about this verse? Prosperity. Protection, hope for a great future. I mean, this should be verse on all of our refrigerators, right? Aren't these the things that any of us would want to see become a reality? Isn't this the American dream with God's endorsement behind it? Well, borrowing from the Spanish theologian Inago Montoya, loosely paraphrased, you keep using that verse, I do not think it means what you think it means. And so the question for us, is this an appropriate use of the verse? To put God on the hook for a life of prosperity, for a life of blessing that fits our own definition. Well, the answer lies in the context of 29. And, and brothers and sisters, make no mistake, this verse is for us. It is for God's people, but in a deeper and profound way than many use it today. In fact... This chapter is a promise of hope to us in Christ as we live a life of exile on this side of heaven. So, Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in the darkest time of Israel's history. And our Lord called him to be a prophet in such a time. He was a priest. And the line of Aaron, who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically in Jerusalem. And as a prophet, 
He warned Israel time and time again about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry. He even prophesied to them the coming of Babylon as God's servant to bring forth judgment by taking the people into exile and later destroying Jerusalem. And sadly, because of Israel's lack of repentance, her refusal to abandon the gods of the nations, this prophecy became reality. Our text this morning picks up with a large group of Judeans being in exile in Babylon. These exiles in Babylon were not ready to accept the idea of a prolonged stay. They thought they were going to be away for just a brief time. In fact, they essentially essentially had the mindset to not unpack their bags. They needed to be ready just like their fathers were on that first night of Passover. You know, keep your shoes on, keep your things packed, tuck everything in. We don't want to miss our flight out of here. So while the exiles are staying packed, they receive a letter in the mail that changes absolutely everything. In fact, this letter is also addressed to us, just as it had an impact on those exiles, so it should shape our lives as it tells us of God's plan for us in Christ. So this chapter opens up by telling us about a letter, a letter that Jeremiah sent to these exiles in Babylon. Now the date of this letter would have been shortly after 597, when Nebuchadnezzar had taken this large group of Judeans from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is about 10 years before the final destruction of Jerusalem. So Zedekiah was king in Jerusalem over the Judeans, which is where Jeremiah is living. But there's a significant community of exiles in Babylon, and the Lord has a sermon for Jeremiah to deliver to these exiles. Jeremiah is to send this sermon to them by way of letter. It's a lot like Paul's circular letter to the churches. We could call this preaching from afar. God's written word with a stamp on it. So this letter begins in verse 4 where the Lord addresses all the exiles that He sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the very first words out of God's mouth would have shaken the exiles to their core. Note verses 5 and 6 with me. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He says to them, build houses, plant gardens, have kids. The Lord tells them, settle down and settle in. You need to go ahead and make a home for yourself here in Babylon. This, this would have been the very last thing that they would have wanted to hear. 
You see, and let's, let's, let's bring ourselves into what they just experienced at the sharp edge of sword and spear. They were just herded like cattle hundreds of miles away from home and dumped in a very strange place. Their neighbors would have spoken a different language. Strange smells would have permeated the air. Very weird food would have been sold in the marketplace. And brothers and sisters, at the end of it, they just did not want to be there. They were homesick. And now the Lord tells them, build houses? This sounds really permanent. This is putting down deep roots. We would rather live in tents. We don't want to make this our home. But the Lord instructs them, settle down. Because their stay is going to be a while, a long while. In fact, did you notice the generations we read in verse 6? Get married, have kids, give their kids in marriage so that they can have kids. This is three generations. The Lord tells these homesick exiles that they're going to see their grandchildren in exile. They will bury their parents in Babylon They will retire there. This is a good long stay, so you need to get used to it. Get comfortable. Make a life for yourself. These commands in verses 5 and 6 would not have been or would not have made them very happy. Now, these orders would not have been just discouraging. They would have also had a strange and bizarre ring to them. To build houses and live in it? To plant a garden and enjoy its luscious and ripe fruit? To have a big family? These are blessings of the covenant. Expressions of God's favor. These are blessings of the promised land. And exile, exile is a curse. Exile is God's punishment. It is His disfavor. It is a picture of being God-forsaken. So how can God call us to blessing in the midst of curse? It's kind of like mixing oil with water. Surely God is doing something new here. Well, the shock of this letter is about to ramp up just a little bit more. And it does so in the next command of the next verse. Note verse 7 with me. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now to seek the peace or welfare of someone is to do what is good for them. It is part of loving your neighbor. You promote their good name, their health, their wealth, their peace. The Lord even instructs them to pray on behalf of this pagan city. This is interceding on the Lord, listen to this, for blessings. The Israelite exiles are to ask the Lord to bless the Babylonians. Now the sting of this command only gets hotter. For the order is to seek the welfare of the city. The city is much bigger than just being a a good neighbor. The city represents the people, the society, yes, the government. The exiles are called to promote the welfare of the state 
of Babylon. Just let that sit for a second. How can God call us to do such a thing? Babylon just ripped me from my homeland. They killed my parents. They committed unspeakable atrocities against my family. They confiscated absolutely everything that I own. And now the Lord calls me to pray for them? Well, that's unthinkable. You see, the command cuts against the grain of the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy 23, the Lord labeled Moab and the Ammonites enemies. And He told Israel explicitly in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 23, do not seek their peace or their welfare. This is the complete opposite of what it says here in Jeremiah 29. Well, Previous prophets often put invaders of Israel into this enemy category. It would have been very natural to put Babylon in this category and not to seek her peace. They are, after all, pagan idolaters. As cruel and godless oppressors, these people deserve to be punished, not blessed. We should pray for Babylon's downfall, not their peace. If we're going to pray, it should be imprecatory prayers only. This would have been the thinking of the exiles. But with these commands, God indicates that He's doing something different, listen to me, when they are not in the promised land. Everybody got it? They're not in the promised land. They're in exile. And in fact, the entire thrust of what He is calling the exiles to do in verses 5-7 through is for them to live... By common grace, look at the command at the end of verse 6. It says, multiply there and do not decrease. This is actually not a command of Israel under Moses. Sure, they multiplied, but this was not a stipulation of Moses. It was a blessing. God told Israel to obey the law And then He would multiply them. But the command to multiply comes from Genesis 1 to Adam and Eve. And it also appears again where? Genesis 9, when God speaks to Noah after the flood. The call to multiply goes out to all people under the sun. And my point is this. The exiles are called to live fruitful lives. Building homes having gardens, having some kiddos. They are called to pray for the welfare of their pagan neighbors, for the peace of a corrupt government, and for God's blessing to be upon it all. In the opening exhortations of this letter, the the Lord reminds the exiles that the rainbow is still shining brightly and that the Noahic covenant is still in play. Well, as you can imagine, this pill is not easy for the exiles to swallow. In fact, it is the polar opposite of the prevailing consensus. And this becomes very clear as the Lord tells the exiles, listen to me, don't listen to the prophets that are with you. Look at verses 8 and 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you, deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. 
that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The exiles shouldn't be deceived by these prophets' dreams or their messages. Why? For the Lord did not send them. The prophets are not speaking God's word. In fact, an implicit nugget of these prophets' message is this. A quick return home. A quick return home. Like Hananiah in the previous chapter, in chapter 28, they announced that they would not be there very long. A year, maybe two at the most. So essentially it would say this, don't unpack, don't put down roots, don't do anything that would help Babylon. For soon Babylon is going to crumble and you're going to get to go home. This was the number one hit on iTunes at the time, these prophets that the Lord did not send. But the Lord's plan is very different. As He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. False prophets, what do they say? They say soon. And the Lord says, 70 years. A long time. There will not be a speedy return. Rather, you will be in exile for a good long time. So in the meantime, unpack, settle in, settle down. Now, even though the Lord clarifies that their exile will be long, listen to me, He also asserts it won't be forever. Yes, they will build houses and they will have grandkids in Babylon, but it will not Be their new homeland. Instead, God does have a good promise for His people in exile. And at the end of those 70 years, the Lord will visit His people favorably. He will bring them back to the promised land. Now, the promised restoration in verses 12 through 14 is basically a rough paragraph of Deuteronomy 30. God here is predicting the restoration of His people He foretells the people's repentance and their seeking of the Lord. He promises that He will hear the people and be found by them. As a father carries his son, the Lord will bear his exiles back to the promised land. Now, we need to consider how this promise colors their exile. In verses 5 through 7, God made it clear paradoxically that they were that there were many blessings in the midst of this cursed exile. Yes, they would enjoy some fresh vegetables, healthy kids, and new homes. They would prosper as Babylon prospered, yet with this promise to return, the Lord gives them a hope, a future to look forward to something better to hope for. This reflects then the hardship of exile, the difficulty of being around foreigners, a reminder that exile is indeed a curse. The blessings of living in Babylon will never replace getting to go back home. Yes, they will live in Babylon, but it will never be their home. It will not be their native land. And to encourage His people, the Lord gives them this blessed hope. 
He lays out his good plan for them so that they can live in exile and still be encouraged. Brothers and sisters, the fullness of covenant life with God is not just being his people, but it's being where God is. To be in God's land. And so the Lord tells the exiles, you're still my people. I still have good plans for you. My plan is to bring you back to me. You are now far from me, but I will bring you back to my house. Yes, you're to build a house in Babylon, but know that one day you will leave that house and you will come home to me. Well, it's hard to imagine a more beautiful hope and a more encouraging promise to those exiles than this. However, the exiles don't want to hear the good news of the gospel. They don't want to be patient. They don't want to wait 70 years. And so they raise an objection in verse 15. They essentially say, Jeremiah, you're writing this letter, but we got our own guys. The Lord gave us prophets here in Babylon with us, and they're saying the opposite that you are. Why should we listen to you, Jeremiah? You're you're way back there in Jerusalem. We got our own prophets They're with us. They understand us. They know what we're going through. You see, the exiles prefer the message of a speedy return home from a message from their own prophets. Their ears got tickled and they listened to the lie rather than the truth of God's word. But the Lord responds to this objection by reminding them of what happens to those that do not listen to him. He does this by telling the exiles what's going to happen to those that are actually still in Judah. They didn't listen to him. They ignored the constant flow of prophets that the Lord sent lovingly. And what is going to happen to those back in Judah? Nothing less than the full curse will rain on them like fire. The sword, famine, The plague will hunt them like wolves after sheep. God sees these people that refused to listen to His Word as vile figs that He is throwing away. He's going to make them a hissing, a reproach among all the nations that surround Israel. The Lord is going to make a full end to those that refuse to listen to Him. So in verse 20, he tells these exiles that they better listen to these words through Jeremiah. They must listen up and start settling in, or they too will meet their end. For the only way to live is for them to listen to this letter from Jeremiah. Now the problem of lying prophets who contradict the Lord's word is is actually a very bad issue. It's huge. This is a big deal. There's quite a number of these prophets, and and they're winning the People's Choice Award. So now the Lord has Jeremiah address a few of these prophets specifically by name. First, in verses 21 through 23, the Lord calls out Ahab and Zedekiah. Now these are two prophets in Babylon with the exiles who are contradicting Jeremiah's letter. So the Lord emphasizes... I did not send them. They are not 
the Lord's prophets. They speak a lie in the Lord's name. The Lord even condemns Ahab and Zedekiah for their mass adultery. Their rank immorality is a sign of them being false prophets. So the Lord is going to have Ahab and Zedekiah executed, and He does so by the hands of who? Of Babylon. In fact, He's going to make them a curse that that the exiles will use. Look down with me at the curse recorded in verse 22. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. And here it is. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in a fire. The curse describes the method of execution used by Babylon. The king of Babylon had Ahab and Zedekiah roasted in a fire. Now, does this sound familiar? Any other story come up in your mind? This is how Nebuchadnezzar attempted to kill Daniel's three friends. The fiery furnace is being roasted in the fire. Now, what was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what were they charged with? Do you guys recall? Well, they were charged with not worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's idol, but the effect of the charge was to make them enemies of the state. It made them rebels. So this execution here means that Ahab and Zedekiah were convicted of sedition inciting revolt. This then reveals an aspect of the false prophet's lie. You see, in their hatred of being in Babylon, they advocated anarchy and mutiny over and against Jeremiah's call to seek peace for the city. They whispered terrorism, insurrection. They wanted to undermine the city's power, to speak ill of the city's authorities, to weaken weaken it economically, to frustrate society's order. Coup d'etat was the dish they served the people with their false message. And for this lie, the Lord judged them, leaving their names behind as a curse for everyone to remember and not to forget their sin. Additionally, the Lord exposes another lying prophet, Shemaiah, and this is a little bit longer, verses 24 through 32. And what's interesting about this section, we actually have a part of the recorded letter that Shemaiah wrote against Jeremiah. Yes, Jeremiah wrote some nice letters to the exile. And so why can't Shemaiah write one of those still to those living back in Judah. In fact, in this letter, Shemaiah rebukes Zephaniah. This was the priest. And he does so for not punishing Jeremiah. As the high-ranking priest, Zephaniah had the authority and the duty to punish bad prophets. Shemaiah clearly identifies Jeremiah as a rogue madman In fact, in verse 28, Shemaiah cites Jeremiah's letter. Look at it. In verse 28, he says, For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens, and eat their produce. 
Shemaiah says, this is crazy talk from a madman. And so Zephaniah, you need to put Jeremiah in stocks and neck irons in order to silence this madman prophet. Brothers and sisters, speaking the truth of God's word comes at a cost. And false prophets will use whatever means necessary to silence the true message of the Lord. Yes, even the use of legitimate means for sinister purposes. Well, the Lord will expose Shemaiah as a liar and a false prophet. The Lord did not send Shemaiah, and his message is not from the Lord. And so the Lord is going to judge Shemaiah, and he does so most severely. He does this by cutting him off, not just him, but cutting off his descendants from Israel. Neither, neither his children nor he will be or see the restoration of the Lord's promise. Another way of saying this is that Shemaiah and his entire family will die in exile. Well, this is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. This is his message to the exiles describing what 70 years of exile will look like. And as he talks about those 70 years, he is speaking to us as well, that is, the church. You see, the 70 years is a picture for us as the church in exile. Think about this with me for just a moment in the New Testament. Peter addresses us, and I know everybody remembers Pastor Jones' sermons, as what? Elect exiles. James refers to us as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. You see, brothers and sisters, we too live under the rainbow and not under a theocracy. So the question for us this morning is how do we please the Lord and live as exiles as we wait for the promised land? How are we to live as we are scattered among pagan nations. Well, your good service is putting down roots. Build a house. Go ahead and put that addition on. Find a career that works for you. Plant a garden for yourself or have your wife do it and enjoy those luscious vegetables. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Throw a wedding for your sons and your daughters. This was my favorite one. One day this will happen. Play with your grandbabies. Pray for and serve your neighbors. Serve your community and the welfare of your city, for this is your lot in life until the Lord returns. This is what the Lord has assigned for us as we live in this common kingdom and we know that there are many blessings. There are many blessings to enjoy, and we should enjoy them. Brothers and sisters, the Lord calls us as His exiles to seek the peace of the city in which we live. To say it another way, pursue the peace and welfare of our society. For in its peace will be our peace. More than likely, this would have been the hardest pill for those Judean exiles to swallow in Babylon. You can hear the excuses of those exiles back then. Babylon stole from us. They 
have oppressed us. They have ripped our families apart. They have killed our loved ones. They have taxed us too much. How can we seek the prosperity and the peace of a pagan nation? They are our enemies. They deserve to die. I want to see their heads dashed against the rocks. Of course, as you know, this would have been, and still is, strict justice. And it's strict justice without any mercy. Without any pity. Kill those idolaters, those wicked men. Yes, the revolt and insurrection called by Ahab and Zedekiah sounds forth loudly in our own day. And yet what we should learn from Jeremiah's letter to the exiles is how strong the Lord is against the false message of imposing mosaic justice on a common grace society. In fact, he even left a curse for us to remember. The Lord cursed those that revolted instead of seeking society's peace. In fact, the authors of the New Testament loudly echoes this call for peace. Paul said this, Live peaceably with all. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, Strive for peace with everyone. Pray for those that rule over you. And just like those exiles in Babylon, we may find this command hard and not easy. Are we not surrounded by wickedness? Doesn't the city in which we live become our enemy in so many ways? I mean, how are are we to seek the welfare of those that want to harm us as Christians? Who pile up evil against us? Yes, the theocratic tendencies and messages are still alive within the church today. Make no mistake. There are those that say, Forget peace, revolt. Mobilize the church. You'll hear this. Mobilize the church and bring the Mosaic law down on the heads of pagans in the public square. But make no mistake. That message is the message of men like Ahab, Zedekiah, and Shemaiah. And that message has no inheritance in God's plan. Rather, the Lord says this, Seek the peace of your city. Pray for it, for your peace is tied to its peace. Some of the heaviest words from our Lord. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Paul echoed this, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Our Lord again calls us as His exiles, listen to me, to obey and to suffer. Brothers and sisters, we are not given the sword. We as the church have the keys of the kingdom. So we live peaceably and we proclaim a wonderful and merciful and gracious gospel. And they will hate you. For it, and yet we are to love them in the midst of this. And so, yes, houses and gardens should remind us of God's blessings. 
The difficulty of seeking peace reminds us that this pilgrim walk in exile belongs to the realm of common grace in a sinful and cursed land. But I want to remind you, this is not our true home. Exile is not the end of God's plan for us, His covenant people. Rather, God does have a good plan for you. Good plans He has given you a blessed hope, a future to long for. In Christ Jesus, He has given you the sure promise that He will bring you to His land that He has prepared for you. The Lord will gather us. Think about this. The Lord will gather us from every location under the sun. Hence the importance of global missions. The importance of planting churches Everywhere. Being blood bought by Christ, we will be gathered to Him. The Lord will bring us to that land whose building and founder is God. Truly, then, the promise to you is nothing less than God's promise to bring you to glory. Listen. The promise we have is not a promise that our present life will all be ice cream and cotton candy. We know that to live in a fallen, sinful world is not easy. No, the whole point of hope is that it longs for and it waits for something better. Our exile on this side of heaven will have many difficulties. It will have many trials. It will have many tragedies. And evil may fall upon us. But this is exactly why He gives us this message of hope. This future to long for, to encourage you, and to comfort you along the way. It is a declaration of hope in Christ that He is keeping you for heaven. And He gives you confidence. He gives you confidence that when you pray, when you seek the Lord, listen, He is listening to you. In Christ, His favor is found. And He will answer your prayer and He will bring you to heaven. Now, as Jeremiah paints for us a picture of our lives as exiles, there is one detail that I believe that we need to ask. How will the Lord gather His people? Isn't that a... a, You're in exile. You're under a curse. How will the Lord gather His people? How can the Lord bless His exiles in the midst of a curse? This is a good question for us to ask. Well, the answer to this question comes from another declaration that Jeremiah gives just A few chapters later, if you want to go there, you can. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31 through 34, and it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, 
And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And listen to this last part. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. So what changed? Brothers and sisters, Christ died for you. While we were enemies, Christ died in our place. God reconciled us to Himself through His Son Not counting our righteousness against us, but making us the very righteousness of God in Christ. This is why God's love, this is why His plans are good for you. This is why God hears our prayers. Because Christ is your priest, He is your prophet, and He is your King. This is why God is found when you seek Him. Because Christ died for you and He united you to Himself. Think about this with me. What makes the new covenant a better covenant than the old? Well, there are a lot of answers that we could could talk about here. But one major aspect is this, that your redemption, think about this, your redemption is front-loaded. It is at the beginning At the work of Christ, your hope, the hope at the resurrection is later, right? That's what we place our hope in. But your redemption is already finished in Christ. He bore your curse. He bore your punishment. He died in your stead, in your place. And so God's plan is truly good for you. Because of Christ, nothing can separate you from His love. Yes, we build houses, but only to leave them behind. God is with us, and His love will keep us for that ultimate hope that He has given to us. Resurrection and life is the true promised land. It is because of Christ and His grace That we can now live by that grace to seek peace for a city in which we live that hates us. His grace and all the benefits is what enables us to live as exiles amongst pagans. To show true grace to others. To love your neighbor. Yes, to love your enemy. Because Christ first loved you, yes, even unto death. Beloved, this is our good hope. This is your life until Christ brings you home. He has given you a certain hope that He will take us to that heavenly promised land. And so may you be comforted by it this Lord's Day and rejoice in what the Lord has done, what He is doing And what He will finally do when He comes and gets us His covenant people.